Hey, what's up? I'm Grayson Singleton, and this is the Gray Area Podcast. Coming up on today's show, we're about three hours away from Heat Celtics Game 5. Who is the most important Miami Heat person? It's the untold story of one guy. You're not going to want to miss that. Plus, what's happened to Jason Kidd in the conference finals? Before we transition to college football and Josh Donaldson. Take a listen. All right, recording this at 3 p.m. Central Time on Tuesday, so four and a half hours before the Boston Celtics will travel to Miami to take on the Heat in Game 5 with that series tied at two games apiece. And I guess we'll start with the Eastern Conference since that's what I led with. The untold narrative of Game 4 of the Eastern Conference Finals where Boston absolutely smoked Miami um, is Tyler Hero. He is the untold narrative of Game 4. Tyler Hero was a late scratch with a groin injury, and he so he so he missed the game, and Miami struggled. <laughs> We're just going to say they struggled. That's the told narrative of Game 4. In years previous, and even before this postseason, or in the first round of this postseason, actually, I have tweeted, it seems like probably going on the past three postseasons, so this one and the last two. The Miami Heat have really mysterious problems with these random occurrences where they just can't score in the playoffs. It happens. I don't know why it does, but it just does. It happened in the bubble, it happened in the playoffs last year, and it's happened again this year. They just have quarters or spurts of quarters where they just struggle to put the ball in the basket. Now, when you look at the composition and the construction of of the Miami Heat team, you can see that. They don't shoot the three ball particularly well. They thrive in the mid-range, which there's a good reason why that's going away. And because that's because NBA players are more lengthier, they're faster, they're stronger, they can cut off that space if you thrive in the mid-range. So the the floor becomes more congested. So the Heat... They don't have a whole lot of shot creators either. In their starting lineup, which the starting lineup they have chosen to go with in the wake of the injury of Kyle Lowry, which Kyle Lowry came back in Game 4. We'll see about his status for Game 5. But the starting lineup that they've been running with for a while has been Gabe Vincent and Max Struess in the backcourt along with Butler, Adebayo, and Tucker, P.J. Tucker. Jimmy Butler, shot creator. Gabe Vincent, uh, can slash a little bit. Max Struess is not. Max Struess is just a bigger version of Duncan Robinson and a guy that can play a little bit more defense than Duncan Robinson, even though that's not a high bar. P.J. Tucker, in terms of shot shot making, is only a threat from the corner three. Period. End of story. He won't even shoot a floater. And then you've got Bam Adebayo, who isn't really a threat from outside the perimeter. He can hit a mid-range, he can turn and face you up and hit a jumper. But other than that, a lot of his shot creation is one dribble, spin around, and he can go off either shoulder and get to the hoop, get to the rim, get to the backboard. So that's how Miami operates. So outside of Jimmy Butler, their only real shot creator is Tyler Hero. And I was not privy of this news before the game started, because I had a busy day that day and was doing other things. The Miami Heat 
scored one point the first eight and a half minutes of of the first quarter. And by the time it got to about the five minute mark of the fourth of the first quarter, I was wondering, where's Tyler Hero? And then I go back through Twitter and see, oh, Tyler Hero's out. And it makes sense why Miami struggled. Because the dudes coming off the bench, there's no shot creator. None. And then when Jimmy Butler has to go take a rest, and if you have Jimmy Butler and Kyle Lowry off the floor at the same time, there's no guy that can that can create his or own his or his own shot outside of the scheme of the offense. So it made sense why Miami got their doors blown off. And I think we're, we undervalue Tyler Hero. Because Tyler Hero is a threat from the perimeter. He is a threat off the dribble. He is a threat off the catch. He is a threat going to the basket. He is a threat creating space in the mid-range. Tyler Hero is the team's only three-level score. And that is in the paint, in the mid-range, and from behind the line. The only one. Jimmy Butler, yeah, he's shooting, I guess, 32% from three in the playoffs. That's not his game. We know this. I think he shoots like 22% from three in the regular season, which is a much more substantial sample size. But that's the Miami Heat. So if they're going to win this series, it is imperative that Tyler Hero be there. Otherwise, you're going to see more quarters like that. Because against a team who has, who is as dominant defensively as the Boston Celtics, how they close space, how they fly around, how they jump passing lanes, how they block shots, the most versatile defensive team I've ever seen. This is the most versatile defensive team in terms of guys who can all guard one through five. This is the most versatile defensive team I've ever seen. You have to have guys that can create scoring opportunities outside of the scheme of the offense. And that's what Miami doesn't have. Now, on the flip side, you've got Boston, who I mentioned is, you know, probably the most complete team left in the NBA playoffs. And that's and to beat them, you're going to need guys who can create their own shots. Um the Dallas Mavericks have a guy off the bench that can that can create his own shot. Spencer Dinwiddie. Um, he showed up last night. Bullock showed up. Finney Smith showed up. Kleber showed up. Mavericks showed up. And then they almost blew it. Because the scrubs almost came back. Now, when I you might use the word scrubs, I don't actually mean that these guys can't play. Because, I mean, those scrubs from Golden State were two lottery picks, Jonathan Kaminga and Moses Moody, who are going to be good. They're going to be good NBA players. I think we can reasonably say that Moses Moody and Jonathan Kaminga are going to be good NBA players. And there was Jordan Poole out there doing his thing. And the Mavericks, who were up 29 going into the fourth quarter, only won by nine. It got to the point where they had they had a 29 point. They were up 30 with 12 minutes to go. And they had to bring Luka back in. 
Luka, I talk about this all the time. You cannot say the word Luka Doncic. You cannot utter the stat usage rate without those two being synonymous. It's a very Russell Westbrook, a very James Harden-like situation. And when you have a dude who is so ball-dominant, granted, he has to be. I get that's how the Mavericks offense, and with their collection of individuals right now, with the composition of that team, that is how things have to run. I get that. This is no shade being cast on Luka Doncic. This is the game that he has to play in order to elevate the Dallas Mavericks. And he does a phenomenal job of doing that. But boy, would that rest for an entire fourth quarter been tantamount. And you couldn't do it. And this is this the takeaway from the first four games of the Western Conference Finals. He has had a brilliant season. An absolutely brilliant season. These conference finals have not been Jason Kidd's brightest moment. At all. I believe it was game two. It was game two. It was the second game in the Bay Area. Mavericks are up 14. Golden State erases that lead in about six or so minutes. The lead gets up to 19. Leads gets up to 19. I believe seven, eight minutes are left in the third quarter. It's a 26-point turnaround. Golden State wins by nine. Or whatever whatever the, the math is there. Um, 28-point turnaround in game two. Golden State's going on the run. They're getting in rhythm. Everything's flowing. Defensively, they're together. Offensively, they're cohesive. And not once does Jason Kidd call a timeout. Doesn't really make a substitute. Doesn't really make a paramount substitution. He keeps going with his same rotation. I mean, yeah, he made a substitution, but it but it was not outside the realm of the Mavericks' normal flow of rotation. And then last night, he couldn't even coach up the bench players to where you could comfortably protect a 30-point lead. And you had to get the starters back out there. Golden State was running off, just running off points and running off points and running off points. They first, I think at first they got it down to 21, then they got it down to 15. Then Reggie Miller said, what happens if you get this down to 11 with four minutes to go? And then they got it down to 11 with three minutes to go. And then they got it down to eight with two and a half minutes to go. And then that's when Steve Kerr said, all right, time to put in, time, time to put in the horses again. I was on my couch with my two sisters, and my sisters, um, one of one of them is a big Golden State fan, the other is a Mavericks fan, we're from Dallas, and the one, the older of the two, the one that was the Warriors fan, she's like, "Are these is is he gonna put Steph and all of them back in?" I'm like, "Uh, uh-uh. uh, nope, 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 nope. You have." And Steve Kerr did this so massively. Forget the fact that they lost. I'll get to that in a second. Steve Kerr played that so well. 
He's like, I'm going to give my starters rest. Nine and a half minutes in the fourth quarter, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Wiggins, Draymond, all those guys were on the bench. And he just watched the reserves run off most of that lead. Run off basically two-thirds of that lead. And then he put a man to see, I wonder if we can actually do this. They didn't. But Luka Nodges had to come back in the game with, I think it was six minutes to go. I think by the time it was two, three minutes left, the entire starting lineup was back in. And Stan Van Gundy on the TNT broadcast talked about, now this is the chess match between Steve Kerr and Jason Kidd to see who can get their stars the most rest. Knowing they've got to travel back to Golden State for Thursday's Game 5. And Steve Kerr stared at Jason Kidd for the entire fourth quarter and Jason Kidd blinked first. And got his horses back in there. Getting them more exposure. Now thankfully nobody got hurt. But I'm telling you right now as a former basketball player, that matters. That matters. And look, the entire Mavericks organization is learning on the job. Lucas said it, I think after game one. He had 20 points. Golden State just absolutely discombobulated him, courtesy of Andrew Wiggins. Lucas said, I'm 23 years old. I'm still learning. Of course, yeah. Yeah, he's 23. Jason Kidd is in his first year with a new team. This is his first run as a head coach. But it's his first year with a new team. This is his first time ever being out of the first round of the playoffs as a head coach. He's learning on the job. Nico Harrison, the GM, he's learning on the job. This is a roster that he and Jason Kidd, when they came in, inherited. They had nothing to do with most of the accumulation of this roster. But they're going to make some moves. You know, they don't they don't support Dwight Powell. Dwight Powell is not going to be a key contributor to the Mavericks next season, barring injury. We don't know what they think about Maxi Kleber. We don't know what's going to happen with Jalen Brunson, even though Jason Kidd has done a masterful job with him. The only fingerprints that are on this Mavericks season from general manager Nico Harrison and coach Jason Kidd is that they somehow were able to get Porzingis up out of there and get a pretty good return for him with Spencer Dinwiddie and Davis Bertons. So the Mavericks are a team that is full of guys that are learning on the job learning on the fly, and it's showing. But for the first four games of this series, and particularly in games two and four, Steve Kerr, the more experienced, the more weathered, and the elder, has ran circles around the guy who I thought was going to be coach of the year, Jason Kidd. So the landscape of college football has changed absolutely dramatically. And I heard an absolutely fantastic line from uh, from Colin Cowherd. And if you've followed my work, you know I quote Colin Cowherd often because I think he's full of really interesting things. 
He says, um, over the last few years, he has tried to make sense of this, and I'm paraphrasing right now, to make sense of how to sort people. And the easy one we do is we sort people, Republican, Democrat, uh, sometimes by race, gender, whatever. Here's a better way, he says, of distinguishing between people. People who are opposed to change and people who are not. People who are scared of change and people who welcome it. Because things will always change. So, college football. And just the landscape of college sports itself, which I've said before, we usually focus on college football and men's college basketball between because those are the generators of money when it comes to the NCAA and the college athletics landscape. So Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher are both examples of what happens when you do not welcome change. Now, here's the thing. None of these college coaches are any fans of what is happening. College coaches have never been fans of any sort of change that um, that favors players. Because what happens is, any change that favors players lessens their control over the institution of college athletics. So, I'll give you an example. Um, Mike Krzyzewski just retired as the coach of Duke. Mike Krzyzewski, a long time ago, was not a fan of the one-and-done. Wouldn't have anything to do with it. When the one-and-done became popularized, and players started staying just their freshman year in college before declaring to the NBA draft, Mike Krzyzewski was having none of it. As a matter of fact, he didn't recruit the guys that he thought would be in and out in one year. John Calipari at Kentucky, however, he did. He did. And for a minute, Kentucky was having a more successful program than Duke until Krzyzewski decided to embrace the one and done. And now you see that he retired as one of the better coaches of my generation of college sports. Lincoln Riley, Jimbo Fisher, Nick Saban, the three most popular college football coaches, in my opinion, th- three of the top, let's just say six. You can put, I guess, Ryan Day in there, Brian Kelly, maybe Cristobal um, is, an out- is an outlier there. But they're three of the most popular college football coaches. Lincoln Riley, Jimbo Fisher, Nick Saban, none of them are in favor of the changes that have that have come upon college football. That is a better access to the transfer portal and name image, name image and likeness. Um one of them has embraced it and that is Lincoln Riley. And that's why USC is going to return to prominence if not this year 1000% by next year. They got the best quarterback in the draft. They got the best receiver. They, they, they have the best quarterback out of the transfer portal. They got the best receiver out of the transfer portal. By the way, they landed Jordan Addison, the wide receiver from Pittsburgh, who is the best receiver, probably might be the best receiver, one of the top three in the nation next season. Definitely up there with Jackson Smith and Jigba of Ohio State. So they got the best quarterback in the portal. They got the best receiver out of the portal. And they got the best coach that transferred schools. USC is going to be good because. They embraced change. You don't have to like it, but embrace it and run and run with it. That brings us to the other two. Saban and Jimbo Fisher. 
So at a booster event, keep that in mind, because we're going to circle back to that in a second. At a booster event late last week, Nick Saban went went on the microphone and said that Jimbo and them over there at Texas A&M, they had the number one recruiting class this year, bought all of their players. Said he bought all of them. And then like we do in 2022, there was a response. And Jimbo went nuts. I mean, he went bananas. Went after Nick Saban's ethical standards, his moral standards. For some reason, compared him to God and said, like, like, if you look at how God does things, you may not like him as much, whatever that meant. Um, said they didn't, said that A&M didn't do anything illegal. And then attacked Nick Saban himself again, and then somehow threw Deion Sand or Nick Saban threw Deion Sanders in there. And then Steve Spurrier, yep, the old, the old ball coach, um, decided to weigh in. And he said simply in one sentence, um, what did he do wrong? He being Nick Saban? You know, in a lot of situations, we try to find if there was somebody who, there's a right person and a wrong person, right? We try to figure out who was right and who was wrong. Can there be a situation where everybody did something wrong? Everybody was wrong. Let's start with Nick Saban. Number one, Nick Saban is wrong because Nick Saban was inaccurate. Nick said A&M bought that entire recruiting class. They signed 11 high-profile guys, I believe is what it was. I don't have that exact number in front of me, but I think that's what it is. Nick Saban said, bought all of them. Signed them all to huge NIL deals. No, they didn't. I think at last reported there were two that had landed NIL deals at A&M or having something to do with them coming to play at College Station. Two of the 11. That's less than 20%. So either Nick was fed bad information or Nick was operating on emotion. Now let's go to Jimbo. Jimbo says, hmm, let me attack this man's character. Number one, you didn't have to do that. Why was that, why was that appropriate? Now look, Jimbo may be a thousand percent correct in everything he said. I don't know. I haven't looked into Nick Saban like that. Maybe I will when he retires. Maybe I will when he dies. Because if I'm privileged enough to still be talking sports at that time, then we most definitely will. But there was no need for that. There was no need for him to compare him to God. That was weird. There was no need to call him a liar. Because he wasn't lying per se. And then there was no need to say we build him up like the czar of college football. As if he hasn't earned that. But Steve Spurrier was the only one that threw an iota of sense into this whole thing. Steve Spurrier, just in a tweet, said, did Nick say anything that was wrong? Did Nick say anything incorrect? And in terms of accuracy, yes. 
he did say something that was incorrect because A&M did not buy the entire team, the entire uh, recruiting class, excuse me. But what Nick was talking about was not something illegal, that Jim, which is why Jimbo got really defensive. Jimbo got super defensive because he thought that Nick Saban said they did something illegal, that they had numerous recruiting violations that led to them having the number one class, number one recruiting class this year. No, he wasn't. Nick literally said he used NIL to lure players. That's not illegal. There's nothing wrong with that. A lot of coaches are doing it now. It's allowed now. Jimbo is embracing the change. Nick is still pushing back. And he's slower to do it. And like Shashevsky, he's seeing my stranglehold on college football may be slipping away. And that's where we get back to where Nick was when he said all of this. Remember I told you that this was at a booster event. And here's what the information that was not given to Jimbo was. Nick's asking for more money. That's all he's doing. Nick is saying to those guys, because remember, schools are not paying athletes. And I'll add on to that yet. Because I still think they need to be. I still think they need to be equitably compensated for being employees of the school and technically employees of the NCAA and employees of the commerces, in this case the SEC. But we're away from that. I get it. We are really, really behind. When it comes to the landscape of college football, we are really, really behind in terms of compensating players. You stripped away their right to make money off of themselves. We got that finally. Okay, cool. That's step one. There's still steps to go. Nick's saying, I need more money. Because it's not through the school they get paid. NIL comes from boosters, from companies, from people giving the kids money. He is appealing to his base and saying, if you guys want to stay on top, like we are, I'm going to need more money. That's what he's saying. In no way was he trying to impugn the reputation of Jimbo Fisher. In no way was he trying to assert that Texas A&M was doing anything illegal. He said they bought players. Now, had he said how had had he said it like I just worded it, that would have been a little bit better than saying they bought their whole recruiting class. But the essence of the message was they got money coming in and they're spending it and it's showing the results. I'm going to need you guys to pony up if you're going to be, if we're going to be the stranglehold on college football. I don't quite understand how, why, how this message didn't get to Jimbo Fisher. I really don't. And I'll close this segment by saying this. And look. There's not, there's not a right, there's not a wrong in every situation. Sometimes everybody's okay. Somebody, sometimes everybody's wrong. Nick, did, Nick was misinformed or just didn't care to get the correct information. Jimbo got defensive. 
and then attacked his character and his ethics, rightfully so, I don't know. Jimbo coached under him at LSU. Maybe he knows something we don't. Well, he definitely does know something we don't. But here's the thing. Um, If you want to blow off steam, number one, here's, here's number one. This, this is two part. Number one, acting out of emotion is never, ever going to lead to anything productive. Never does. Take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. You know, when I'm angry at something, um, there was a, there was a shooting at a school in Texas, about four hours from where I am, um, and it made me think of a lot of things. The amount of things I typed out that I could have sent out on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, you just type them out. And then you delete them. If you're angry with your boss, type out the angry message. And then delete it. You still got it off your chest. But acting in emotion never is the great... Ne- never is a great idea. Never is the best idea. That's why when, when it, whenever... Whenever I'm angry at somebody... I say to myself what I want to say to them. And then I don't think about it again. I think it's a good way to live. I think it's a good way to live. Every once in a while you do need to confront people. That much is true. But you've got to be measured about it. And when you act in emotion, that's never the case. And that's what happened here. Um, but really, above all of this, college coaches and the universities and the NCAA and the conferences are losing power over these kids. And it bothers them to no end. That kids can now dictate their futures. That kids can now dictate that where they get developed. That kids can now be compensated for their hard work and the toil that they put their bodies through. They're mad at that. People... There's people who embrace change, and there's people who are opposed to it. And guess which one is the NCAA and its coaches. All right, one last thing before we get out of here. Um, I'm a Yankees fan. Again, if you've followed my work for a little bit, you know that. Um, so yeah, the Yankees, best team in baseball, as a matter of fact, right now. 30 and 13, first team to 30 wins this season. Pretty cool. Um, there's a situation with... Uh, Josh Donaldson, Yankees third baseman, who I like. I mean, I like as a player. I don't know anything about him as a person. And this story doesn't really put him in that great of a light. But we're going to break this down. Um, Josh Donaldson was suspended for one game. I think that suspension will be served either tonight or it was served last night. I have to double check that. But it's a one-game suspension. Because he called Tim Anderson, who is a shortstop for the Chicago White Sox, he is a black man, one of the very few African-Americans that is in Major League Baseball. I think the makeup of African-Americans in Major League Baseball is 7.2% is the number I'm, being, I'm hearing thrown around. He called Tim Anderson Jackie. And Tim Anderson didn't quite like that. 
Okay. Okay, okay, okay. I would not be doing my job as a journalist if I didn't give you the context. So let's give you the context. Um, In 2019, Tim Anderson did an interview with Sports Illustrated where he referred to himself as the new Jackie Robinson. Hopefully I do not have to explain what the name Jackie Robinson means. If I do, you need to educate yourself. That is a problem. Now, let me move on from that. I'm big into history. Um, he said that he wants to bring fun back to baseball. And if you watch Tim Anderson play ever, Tim Anderson is a very electric player. He is emotional. He is flashy. He is basically everything that makes baseball fun and everything that baseball refuses to embrace. First of all, if I was Tim Anderson, I wouldn't say I was the new Jackie Robinson because you weren't really breaking a barrier separated by skin tone. So it's a little bit erroneous in the analogy, but I get what you're going for. He's trying to bring, shatter this barrier of a gentleman's kind of country club kind of vibe. With Major League Baseball, one I have lamented in the past. I get it. Yasiel Puig tried to do it, except Yasiel Puig just wasn't good enough by the time that he stopped playing, that he stopped being employed in Major League Baseball. Tim Anderson, obviously, that's not the case. Tim Anderson is an all-star. Um. Well, anyway, Tim Anderson and, J- and Josh Donaldson got into it, and Josh Donaldson ended up calling Tim Anderson Jackie. In reference to the interview he gave, and obviously, and I guess, Jackie Rock, I mean, oh my gosh, Josh Donaldson, beg your pardon, said that they had joked about it in the past, over the last two plus years, and Tim never said anything about it. And then one day, Timmy got ticked off. And the bench is cleared, and Josh Donaldson is serving a one-game suspension. Um, here's what I would say to Josh Donaldson. Have you never been around black people? Here's the thing. Um, there are things that you can say. There's a spectrum of things. If you are a white person talking to black people, there's a spectrum of things. There's your things at this end of the spectrum that are perfectly okay. There are things at the other end of the spectrum, the N-word, that you should never say. And along that spectrum are some things that aren't particularly racist, but you probably shouldn't say. And also on that spectrum are things that, yeah, something might seem like a joke. But all black people know this. Eventually, there's a point where you're just like, all right, I've had enough of this. I've had this situation happen in my life. And it's hard to confront people about that and and communicate, you know, hey, like, I look, you're not this isn't offensive, but can you please not say this? That that's that's sometimes a difficult conversation to have. So I wouldn't call t- uh, Josh Donaldson. I never thought, oh, that's a racist thing to say. But I would ask him this. Was that a good idea? 
Did you really need to do that? I don't think it was so malicious, though, to where this needs to impugn Josh Donaldson's reputation. Now, look, I don't know Josh. I don't know Josh Donaldson's um, character. I don't know what people think in the major leagues about him. I've heard conflicting stories about that. I don't think he's the most well-liked person, but I don't think he's like somebody that everybody has a problem with. So I I don't know. Um, but based on, <laughs> based on, you know, that press conference, he, uh, or not the press conference, uh, his media availability. And if you didn't hear it, I kind of paraphrased it a couple minutes ago, but if you want to find it, it's, it's all over YouTube. You can find it rather easily. Um, he was so confused. And that just makes me think, this this dude don't have much experience with black people. Because <laughs> he's like, one minute it's a joke, and the other, and the next is like, what happened to Timmy? Now, do I think a suspension was warranted? I guess. One game. You were the instigator in a brawl. Number one. That's number one. You probably get, you get one game. Here's what I, here's what I also know. And... Major League Baseball has tremendous reporting, um, especially ESPN's coverage of it, um, with Jeff Passan and Buster Olney and the crew, um, Marley Rivera. They do a great job covering Major League Baseball over there. And what was reported is that Major League Baseball had a conversation with Josh Donaldson. They had a conversation with Tim Anderson. And then they decided on the discipline. So I think they found something from Tim Anderson that we don't know that made them comfortable with saying, okay, one game suspension. And now this is over and done with. And that's what it has to be. Um, I wouldn't, this isn't a time and we have to be careful about this. We really, really do. You cannot call everything racist. There is room for that. There is room. There are racist people out there. There are things that people say that are racist. But when you overuse everything, things like that, it's the boy who cried wolf effect. Eventually, it's going to lose its um, its urgency. Because if you overuse it or misuse it in a particular case, the next time something actually comes up, people are going to look at you side-eyed. That's why I'm not quick to attach racist or racial animus to this Josh Donaldson situation. It was just a bad idea. That's 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 all we can draw this up to be. It's just a bad idea. You, you, you shouldn't have said it. And this is stuff we all do, maybe not along racial lines, but... Some things are just a bad idea to say, and that's that's what Josh that's the situation Josh Donaldson found himself in. But Major League Baseball is at this place in its life where they are trying to market the game to African Americans better, market the game to young African Americans better who are more privy to these things, and also market the game to a generation that is more progressive. Because baseball's population, I mean popularity, excuse me, is dying. And basically that's that's a that's a population of people who 
aren't really privy to these sort of sort of issues, but the generation they're trying to increase their popularity is. It's no secret that my generation, I'm 20 years old, um, there is no secret that my generation is a more progressive generation. You see it with on social media, um, you see it in the streets. People feel like they can, younger people are feeling that they can make their voices heard. And that's what Major League Baseball is trying to market to. So that's why the Major League Baseball felt the need to suspend Josh Donaldson for one game. And I can't fault them for that. But black people, let's not call Josh Donaldson racist here. Because that isn't applicable in this situation. All right, that'll do it. For the Gray Area Podcast, I am Grayson Singleton. Enjoy Heat Celtics tonight and enjoy the rest of the NBA season. God bless. Keep cool. We will talk to you next time. Peace.